Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Reading then Romans 4, 1 to 3. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And so, in arguing with a false teacher, Paul is defining Christian faith. And of course, the picture is it takes precedent over the law. Faith is potentially the entry point into meaning. And I say potentially because I think we can get it wrong. That is a coherent and dynamic personal engagement with the reality of God and the world opens up to us in faith. Faith, rightly understood, is the answer to what is sometimes called foundationalism. That is that we imagine that we can come to God on the basis of human certainty or human reason. The notion that reason serves as its own foundation. And of course these things have collapsed. And I think faith is the answer to both of those situations. Faith is not dependent upon sure and certain knowledge, nor does it presume a singular, stable culture, you know, as if the culture creates meaning, but presumes from its inception, if we're thinking in terms of Abraham, well, already there is a plurality of cultures with Abraham himself. There is a dynamism in apprehending reality, a kind of always unfolding personal dimension, because that's what Paul is going, as he uses Abraham as an example, of course, faith is all about the life of Abraham, Abraham and Sarah and their journey. And so Abraham, as the prototype of faith, he leaves his home, his family, his culture, He departs from Babel. Chapter 11 is Babel. Chapter 12 is Abraham. And so Babel is this kind of unified world, a unified religion, a unified language, a unified culture. It was the foundation. Literally, they built a tower whose foundations reached from earth to heaven They presumed that they could enter into the presence of God in and through their own understanding. That it was some way an absolute and certain means based on concrete, well, brick foundations in this instance. Not subject to mortality and death. That is, they would make a name for themselves. And the survival of the culture through this tower That is the enduring meaning presented or pursued in Babel. And that's what Abraham is departing from. 
Abraham departs from Babel on his own personal journey. And I'm using the word personal here because notice when we read Genesis 11, there really aren't any distinguishable persons in Babel. And he's going to be defined in regard to his encounter with God. And what I'm implying here is that's true of the faith of all of us, our own personal faith. In this story, in Abraham's journey, there is nothing certain. There is nothing permanent. There is nothing concrete in his life's journey. He just has the promise from God that I will make your name great. And on this basis, he negotiates life's uncertainties. But most particularly, of course, we're thinking about the uncertainty, the defining reality of death. This is here in Romans chapter 4, that Abraham was over 100 years old. He was as good as dead. Sarah's womb was dead. And so the promise from God is his means, is the meaning of triangulating, you know, between there's the reality of God, he knows that, there is his own mortal reality, and then there is the hope for an enduring life in a son. And this triangulation concerns his own bodily self, his own self-understanding in being, and this is in verse 19, being counted as good as dead. Abraham's understanding of the world depends upon the interpretive lens of this promise that has been given to him, and his faithfulness is the point of apprehension. And of course, as I'm saying, his apprehension, this is the role of faith for all of us. Here is the point in which we apprehend, we understand. His experience is made intelligible when it would otherwise have been chaotic and futile in the face of death. But due to his faithfulness, and faithfulness, you know, is an enduring thing. It's an enduring over his life. It's enduring hardship. It's depicting a journey. So when we say belief or faith, and this is true to the Greek, it is not simply a belief in your head or a one-time sort of acknowledgement, but it's depicting faithfulness. First, this intelligibility is at first laughable. You know Sarah laughed, but of course Abraham just fell down on his face laughing. They're not simply dismissive, but the coherence of their life through faith, it's not evident how that works. And I think it's significant that they name their boy Isaac, which actually translates, he who laughs. That is, they memorialize their laughter. It wasn't a laughter lacking in faith, but I think it was a laughter that contained an element of God breaking in of joy. But of course, for 25 years, they don't have a son. Prior to the birth of Isaac, they just have this promise. We might say that faith does not appear reasonable. It does not accord with experience. And on the surface, it appears to contradict the way things are. Now, I don't think it's really contradictory. You know, Abraham looked down in verse 23 to 25. 
Paul describes Abraham as having resurrection faith, which means he does have an intelligible vision. It may not be rational in any normal sense, but it's not inherently contradictory. God can provide a son. I believe that because I believe in resurrection faith. We know that when Isaac is taken up Mount Moriah, that's specifically that Abraham in the book of Hebrews is described in the same way. He thought God could deliver him from death. But of course, the very birth of Isaac is a deliverance from out of death. The how, you know, of God's capacity to deliver on this promise, Abraham may not be able to entirely explain, and we kind of see this in Abraham's attempt to help God along. It's actually Sarah's idea. She says, well, take Hagar and have a child through her. And his dependence upon nature or the natural processes, and then I think his abandonment of a natural explanation is part of his growing faithfulness. God can do this through means that you may not understand. Nature is not definitive. Life's circumstance is not definitive. And yet faith encompasses these realities in a larger understanding. But it does encompass them. In other words, it takes these things into account. The reality of God, it doesn't simply override these other realities, but it brings a coherence and intelligibility that they intrinsically lack. And here I'm thinking, you know, that's true of our situations always. If we imagine that we can gain meaning through the culture that we're a part of, through being Jewish or American or Missourian, well, they intrinsically don't give us the values and meaning that we will have in this relationship to God, but God doesn't overlook our circumstance. And this understanding on the part of Abraham, it's more than an assent to facts. It's more even, I think, than trust in a promise. Really, it's his life's journey of faithfulness that constitutes his recognition and confirms, as Paul describes it, look at verse 17, that in the presence of him who he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. That's at the heart of the faith of Abraham. And remember when we're saying Abraham, we're saying our faith, because this is the way that Paul is using it. That just as God can create from nothing, so too he can give life, he can give a son, to Abraham. And so God is not known or determined on the basis of the world, but the world and its reality are known and understood through an integrated knowledge of God. God is not caused, but he causes all things. And this is the determination. This is determinant of reality. And this is the reality in which Abraham lives his life of faithfulness. This is the insight provided by faith. He's seeking understanding on the basis of his faith. Isn't that what we are all doing? That through faith we're seeking understanding. This understanding pertained to his life, 
his body, his marriage, his world. And so his faith is not an abstraction. You know, he didn't need anybody to translate the Greek for him. It's not a set of dogmas. It's not a law. It's not even a particular doctrine. But his faith pertains directly to the person of God and to himself. He can abstract from God's ability to give him a son. You know, he can talk about God's creation of the world. So I'm not leaving out that understanding. But this sort of abstraction is grounded in his personal reality. And I'm saying that about all of our faith. That's where it's grounded. That's how we know who God is. His faith opens him to an understanding of the world, an understanding of himself, and this understanding changes the very fabric of his experience. You know, the meaning that he's going to attach to the world. His self-consciousness, it refracts back on his understanding of even who he is. And so, in short, faith launches understanding for all of us, for him. Faith launches coherence. It's in faith that things hold together. You know, our world may fall apart, but God is bigger than our world. Faith launches intelligibility. This is how we understand the purposes of ourselves and the world. Faith launches meaning. And here, meaning, I'm not denying there may be other kinds of meaning. You know, one plus one equals two. That's a kind of meaning. But I think meaning itself is changed up. And these things, this meaning, this intelligibility, it really can't begin elsewhere for either Abraham or for us, for those who have faith. And so what is at stake in faith in chapter 4 of Romans? I think we can get this wrong, and I think we often do get it wrong, unfortunately. And this is the significance of Paul's battle with this Judaizing false teacher that we've been talking about. And then in justification theory that kind of fuses a false understanding with Paul's understanding. And what is shifted up, you know, what's at stake is nothing less than the meaning, not just of faith, certainly that, but the meaning of Christianity, or maybe the meaning of meaning and understanding. Where faith is defined by law, Old Testament law, you know, that's the argument he's having in chapter 4. He's saying, wait a minute, the faith of Abraham precedes the law. Or we could talk about it in terms of culture. Oh, the faith of Abraham comes before Judaism. We could talk about it in terms of, you know, however you want to talk about it, an ethnic group, whatever being a Jew is, Abraham precedes all of that. And so too for all of us, faith precedes all of these things. And so it's not about propositions. It's not about dogma. It's not about some imagined, stable tradition. But where we picture faith as defined by law, well then suddenly the doctrines, the laws, those are going to become primary. But with Abraham, and of course we're talking about Christian faith, meaning is personal. 
But in this law-based understanding, it's not personal, it's impersonal. Rather than engaging an unfolding reality, well, I find meaning in doctrines. Maybe I have to look in the letter of the law. And so Christianity is reduced to a system of belief in a static set of propositions. You believe these things, and that is determinative of faith and salvation. And so meaning in this is reduced to grasping this system, a set of statements. And understanding is not concerned with personal reality or a dynamic engagement with the world's reality. Rather than faith being an ever-deepening engagement with God in the world, you know, this is what wisdom and understanding, we're to grow in the faith. We can grow in the faith because it involves us personally, dynamically. And instead of that, if it's faith in the law, faith becomes belief in simply doctrines and propositions. Maybe I can know some more propositions, but they don't change my life. And so justification theory, this fusion of false teaching in which the law is determinative, but is actually definitive of the Protestant Reformation. We talked about Martin Luther and pictured how he's fused these two things. And we're kind of the heirs of this understanding. This understanding in which we cannot get at the reality of God, and all we have is doctrines, propositions, a kind of nominalist understanding. Well, it's also given us a nominalist faith that is impersonal, that's static that's nominalist. Let me do a misreading of Romans 4. Don't lose track here. I'm, I'm giving you the false teaching now. So if you fall asleep and come back and say, man, this is... The reading of justification theory in Romans 4. And what I'm doing, I want to make clear the absolute alternative represented by Paul's view of faith and this false view. And so, in justification theory, Romans 4 illustrates how faith justifies in place of the law. So that Abraham is a model to be emulated. I'm not saying we shouldn't emulate him, but it's much more than that. In other words, this faith of Abraham, he's a type of Christ. And the picture in justification theory is, oh, faith saves you if you're able to emulate Abraham. Abraham is the prime example that faith, or sola fide, in Luther's terms, saves apart from works of the law. But unfortunately, I think both righteousness and faith are given a meaning they simply do not have in this passage. Continuing with my false teaching, Abraham, like all who turn to faith, has recognized that he is a sinner and that he cannot please God through the law, and therefore he has faith. Now don't look in Romans 4 for this because you're not going to find it. But in this understanding, his faith fills in the incapacity of the law. And Abraham had to discover this fact. And, and of course, this is a necessity. This is what salvation is in justification theory. Oh, I tried to do the works of the law. I couldn't do them. I failed. And now I've got Jesus. And so Abraham trusts in the one, and there, there is this verse, he justifies the ungodly, there is verses 7 and 8, 
But of course, Paul is referencing not Abraham, but David here. David's struggle, but of course the idea is, well, Abraham had to have experienced this too. That is, we must presume Abraham had a struggle with works righteousness. And his faith is an answer to this struggle. Though Paul in no way intimates this, we have to read it there. Justification theory requires the encounter of failure in regard to works of the law, that law is the definition of righteousness, and faith then is to trust that Jesus has fulfilled where the law could not. And in this typical understanding, righteousness and salvation are determined through the law. And what is meant by salvation and justification theory is that humanity is sinful, and what we mean by sinful, defined by, you know, they can't keep the law, and faith fills in where works didn't cut it, couldn't make it. And the problem is that faith, defined by its role in regard to the law, that is precisely the argument set forth by the false teacher, which Paul is refuting. Paul is saying, faith has nothing to do with the law. And the teacher is arguing for the necessity of the law. You Christians are going to have to keep the law. You're going to have to be circumcised. But you understand justification theory also needs the law. Certainly it's inadequate, but you have to try to you know, do good works. And so both systems need the law. Paul is arguing in this chapter, and that's where we begin, faith comes before the law. There is no law. And so there are several problems with justification theories account. And by this, I'm just talking about this is the general Protestant understanding, including the Christian church, usually. Though faith in this theory is centered on the work of Christ, in place of the law, we have to ask ourselves, wait a minute, how can Abraham believe in Jesus? How can he be said to be the father of all who believe when his own belief is not Christ-centered? You know, his belief is in God, not Christ. He's in the Father that he trusts. Abraham's faith pertained directly to his particular predicament. You know, that's what we're talking about. He couldn't have a son. He couldn't have a child. But in justification theory, it's concerned with law and its requirements. There's nothing like that in this story. Abraham gives no evidence of an abstract struggle with a universal law. Just not there. Is Paul picturing Abraham as somehow imputed with righteousness? You know, he said that he's talking about righteousness and Abraham has received righteousness. Is this defined by the law? Before there was law, there is nowhere in the text the notion that legal righteousness is transferred to Abraham. That's not what we're talking about. This misses the focus of the promise and the fact that Paul is using the term righteousness. That's the whole book of Romans. That's verse 17 in chapter 1. There is a righteousness revealed from heaven. What righteousness? The righteousness of Christ. So Paul is not picturing Abraham as having some imputed righteousness, you know, in Luther's phrase, defined by the law. There's nowhere in the text that legal righteousness is transferred to Abraham. That, we're not even talking about that. That's not the subject. 
This misses the focus that the promise of given to Abraham, in which Paul is saying, here's the righteousness of God, it is about life given through Isaac. So we need to redefine the word righteousness. It, it can mean things are not right and God makes them right. Right wising is a way that it's been put. As Douglas Campbell translates verse 3, Abraham trusted in God and it, his trust, was credited to his advantage. Things ain't right and God's making them right. These texts specifically disavow the notion of merit as the basis of God's action, which would create a kind of forensic, you know, law-based, retributive relationship. Rather than based on trust, it's based on law. So look at verses 321 to 22 before this. This is actually the thesis that Paul is working with. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. Did you get it? A righteousness apart from the law. Now it's witnessed to by the law after the fact. The problem is justification theory reads this apart from the law, not as a complete departure, which is what Paul is arguing, the law has been set aside, but as they would argue, filling in the weakness of the law. And so Paul is making the case, faith has nothing to do with the law. It precedes the law. Simply stated, Paul is not a Protestant. Paul is not a Lutheran. Paul is not doing justification theory. And his use of Abraham as an example of faith has nothing to do with Abraham's, you know, imagined discovery of the law, trying to keep the law, I can't keep the law. That's not the story of Abraham. Paul is using Abraham as a type of Christ. And of course, he does not picture a Christless faith as saving. There is no resurrection faith. There is no defeat of death. There is no enduring faithfulness apart from Christ. And that's what he says at the end of the chapter. Abraham trusted in Christ. Abraham's journey is a type, we could say, of the journey of Christ. It's not merely one to be emulated. No one is up to the task of faith like that of Abraham. Any more than anyone, any mere mortals can take up the cross, die, and be raised again. The, the, the course that Christ has blazed, he's pioneered. Participation and not emulation is the point. Participation in the faithfulness of Christ is the point. Christ did this. And Abraham, in his own life encounter with death and his resurrection faith, is a type of Christian faithfulness. The Christian faith does not conjure up this faith, you know, oh, I, I got to really intensely believe, but we participate in the faithfulness of Christ. He is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, as the writer of Hebrews puts it. Abraham is the key Old Testament type then of the faithfulness of Christ. And so Paul's argument undercuts the necessity of law. First of all, this is, you know, by arguing that faith is prior to the giving of the law. This is then the details of the argument. 
Which came first, circumcision or faith? Well, of course, the faith did. Righteousness does not and cannot pertain to the law. But it, first of all, refers to God's promise to give Abraham a son. That is, it's his specific need. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. He trusted God. He had faith. He was faithful. And it was credited to him as righteousness. His faithfulness to the promise made things right in his life. He was given life in and through the promise that he trusted in. Abraham was declared righteous. He's given life. Where death reigned, due to his faith, life reigns. Of course, this is a picture of Christian faith. The declaration of righteousness pertains directly to the giving of Isaac. That you will become a father of many nations, down in 17 to 18. In the presence of him who believed in God, even God who gives life to the dead, you know, creation ex nihilo, and resurrection from the dead, are the same sort of belief. In hope against hope he believed, so that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which has been spoken, so shall your descendants be. So Abraham's faith is organically connected with his predicament. What's his predicament? He's childless. What's our predicament? We're without life within ourselves, but God through Christ gives us life. Same predicament. That is that we trust in Christ to give life in the face of death. This is called resurrection faith. Now, unfortunately, a justification theory, it really has no role for resurrection in salvation. What do you do with resurrection? And notice the weight. Paul puts the primary weight of Abraham's faith on resurrection, the faith and vindication of resurrection. In 4.23 to 24, the conclusion. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Resurrection faith is the faith of Abraham. This definition of righteousness does not and cannot refer to the law. If we refer it to the law, we've missed it. And this faith then, as Paul says, it's apart from that. It's before that. It's prior to that. It's greater than that, we might say. Justification theory has misconstrued faith. It's misconstrued righteousness. It's misconstrued salvation. It's misconstrued the work of Christ. But it's also relinquished the intelligibility fostered by the journey of Christian faithfulness. Postmodernism, you know, whatever that might mean, but presumably has cleared away the foundations of the modern. And we are left homeless. But this homelessness is precisely the context in which faith takes on its fullness of meaning. Abraham went into an unknown country, a place he did not know, without family, without father, without mother. We are left homeless in one sense in this world. There is no stable reality to be accessed through culture, 
through science, through institutions. But the dynamism of faith apprehends an order of meaning which is not dependent on these falsely reified forms, these things that are not concrete, made concrete and immutable, unchangeable. Through faith we can move forward into the unknown country because that's where we're all going. And we will not be given over then to a kind of futile relativity. No, we have the truth of Christ. There is an intelligible, personal meaning to be continually garnered. It's dynamic. It's unfolding. It's continually being realized on our faith journey, just as it was on Abraham's faith journey. And so Romans 4, in depicting the meaning of faith, pictures entry into an alternative world, a world of life and meaning on the basis of the dynamic intelligibility of faith. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.